Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and as with every other episode of this show, except one, and I don't think that turned out as well as it could have, I have with me my good friend and co-conspirator in a project so epic it's going to blow your mind, Scott H. Gardner. Wait, I'm only in every other episode now? No, there's just one episode you weren't in of Tales. Oh, but you said as in every other episode. Did I say every other? Yeah, you like s- like every. Really, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> like that with me. Just, you know, I haven't been sleeping regularly, and I'm a little. Oh, I me too. Stupid. You know, I did find this really great cure for uh, insomnia, though. It's called complete and utter mental and physical exhaustion, and it it worked wonders for me. But uh, yeah, I, I've just been I've just been popping a melatonin tablet. I mean, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I'll, but but I, I I think I think maybe uh, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe that works too. So now I'm having these images of you on like a street corner with signs saying you'll do terrible terrible things for your melatonin hit. Yeah. <laughs> Not with something I could just walk into any grocery store. And buy, you know? I mean, it's, it's not like you know, crack. Get your crack. crack. So, well, we don't really have any preamble this time out, folks. But one of the one of the things that uh, people mentioned in emails that we've covered in the past is that we're not really covering emails. But you know, it takes a while for these things to kind of pile up. So we're just going to knock out a few before we get into today's exciting episode. And I think this is going to be one of those episodes where. What we have on the back half of the show is actually kind of more exciting than the two stories that we're going to be covering. So, uh, well, I, maybe I not know. for the Infinity Incorporated one. But, well, we'll, uh, we'll have to see on that because, well, I don't want to. I don't want to tip my hand too early, but I will just say that uh, something shocking happened when I read the uh, All Star issue. So, but anyway. Uh, yes, let's go ahead and we'll dive into these emails real quick. First one here, I do apologize. I don't know who this is from. I know the name that uh, that it came to me as. Uh, I don't want to give the complete email address here, but it's just it's Silent Walker and some numbers after it. So I don't know who this is from. I do apologize. Um, the subject header on this is enjoying the shows. He says, hi, guys. 
Says, I gotta say, I deeply enjoy your show. I've backtracked through most of the back episodes, and it astounds me the depth of knowledge your host uh, holds on various subjects. I love all the shows, but get happily excited. Happily excited. It's all in caps. Happily excited when a new episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America uploads, or just one of the guys. So keep up the awesome entertainment and all keep sending subscribers to the podcast. And again, I wish I knew who uh, the name of the person that sent this. If you are this person, write in again. Tell us your name. Tell us how you discovered the show, all that sort of thing. But uh, thank you so much for the feedback. I like it. Yeah, that's uh, just one of the guys is a good show. Mm-hmm. So to be mentioned in the same breath is, uh, is, is neat. Sean's doing a great job with it. So next up, we have an email from Gene Hendricks, uh, from, uh, who does a couple podcasts of his own. Uh, Quasar one? He does Quasar, and he does The Hammer Strikes. Yes. And this one is uh, just titled, Thanks. Mike and Scott, you say you have an empty mailbag? Well, not anymore. I know that scheduling has been a big issue for you guys, but I wanted to thank you for bringing back Top JSA. That's just how I'm going to say it from anywhere. It's not Tails anymore. It's Tot JSN. <laughs> uh, thank you, Gene. Uh, this is the podcast that made me start listening to Two True Freaks, having started at Fire and Water, added views, and then this show. Uh, I'm a big fan of continuity, and Roy Thomas is the master. He has the master in uh, capitalized of working in little details that either connect things or make sense of them. Yeah, he goes overboard sometimes, like having Robin and Robot Man's assistant being related, but for the most part, he's spot on. Until this show, I didn't know about him. Thanks for that. Keep up the great work, and rest assured, I'll keep the feed on my phone, even if there is another hiatus. Gene, the pseudo-jock that makes Mike laugh and keeps pestering Scott on <laughs> Gene is the guy, by the way, that, uh, that messaged me about remember when I told you that guy that had been listening to the show like four years after the fact and was just like hey about the whole you know, <laughs> oh no that, that's him that's oh him. I wish I <laughs> I wish I had known that because uh, as as I record this just day before yesterday I actually met Gene we uh, we got together he is actually it's it's funny because by this time the episode comes out this will be quite a while ago. But as we record this, uh, we just got together day before yesterday. He and uh, and his wife are here uh, vacationing at Walt Disney World. So uh, we got together. We hooked up over at uh, uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. Uh, he actually saved uh, doing the new version of Star Tours until I could ride it with him for his first time so I could gauge his reaction and everything. It was really cool. Gene's a hell of a nice guy. We had a blast just hanging out and talking and we got back to uh, the condo they're staying at and uh, Thor was on so we watched the end of Thor together. It was just a blast. He's he's really cool. He's a really good guy but I wish I had known that because I definitely would have given him shit about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. I have the next one, don't I? Yes. Ah, I like this one. This one is from, and oh my goodness, I'm probably going to butcher this name. Greg, is it is it Hemmen? H-E-M-M-A-N-N. I'm going to guess Hemmen. Uh, the subject of this one is just Megacon. He says, 
If it was you guys we met at Megacon, awesome to do it. He says, I was dressed as the inept Dr. Midnight, poking one of you in the eyes in a picture. Can you send me a copy? Thanks, and I'll check out the podcast. Uh, those that follow me on uh, Facebook, you may have seen this. If you haven't, go check out my pictures from Megacon. You will get a kick out of it. My favorite costume, and I'm not just saying this just, just to kiss Greg's ass, Literally, it was my favorite costume of the entire con was Greg was dressed as the classic, you know, JSA era Dr. Midnight. And I was so impressed with his costume and everything. I went up and I struck up a brief conversation explaining, you know, hi, I'm Scott. You know, I do this podcast about the JSA, blah, blah, blah. And I was telling him how in the early days when we were covering all-star comics, how we were making this running gag and uh, about, you know, Dr. Midnight's blindness and always picking on the poor guy, how he was flying the, you know, the flying car and everything, yet he's the blind guy and all that. So we staged a picture where it looks like I'm asking him for directions and he's poking me right in the eye. It's, <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny as hell. Awesome. But Greg's he was a really, really nice guy. So, I, you know, one of these years, I'm going to get down to MegaCon with you, uh, and we are going to take that place by storm. Yes. Uh, definitely. Just, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's always, like, right around my birthday, you know, like, usually, you know, either in February or March, but just, you know, getting to Orlando is not... <laughs> It's not an easy trip to make. Uh, it's worth your while, just saying. I know uh, still people that know people that know mices, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, uh, this guy. Really? This guy? Okay, I guess. Sure, that's fine. No, I'm just kidding. I'm giving Shag a hard time. Uh, oh, not uh, him. Yeah, yeah, not him. <laughs> the irredeemable Shag has written into the show. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, in all honesty, give Shag and Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water podcast and the Who's Who podcast a really big thanks. Uh, because they are really good, especially Shag. And now that Rob's listening to the show... Uh, really good about mentioning us uh, when things of JSA nature come up on, especially the Who's Who podcast. Uh, I, I really think that uh, if you're listening to the back catalog right now and you get to the coverage we did of Crisis on Earth Prime, uh, the, the five-part story that crossed over with Justice League, uh, really, once you're once you're done listening to our coverage, listen to their episode of the Fire and Water that covered it because they did it in one episode, uh, but did a really good job covering that story. But they they're, they're really good about promoting us. We've been playing their trailer because they played our trailer a bunch of times. Uh, plus, Shag's a really old friend of mine, and when I say really old, I mean he's older than I am. <laughs> and uh, I'm just saying, you know, not everybody, you know. I'm not going to tell the story of how he broke his tailbone. Anyways. Um. I was just talking to Shag on the, on my drive home from work the other night. I hadn't talked to him in quite a while. Shag's, I, I like Shag. Shag's a good guy. And I always feel bad because I don't think I've listened to more than the first episode they did of Fire and Water. So now knowing that they're talking about us over there, now, now I'm going to have to go and get caught up on the show. Just well, to hear what he's saying. Definitely listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uh, Fire and Water is about uh, that you know Shag is a fan of Firestorm, and Rob is a fan of Aquaman, and Shag's a big fan of Aquaman too. And I'm, I'm a so fan the, of both the characters. So there you go. So, 
So they uh, they got together and started a podcast about. I mean, it's just an unlikely pairing of characters, you know. You know, you know, you could see doing a Firestorm show, you could see see doing an Aquaman show, but really, like putting those two together, that's like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. And they started right around the start of the new Fifty Two because both characters had new series, uh, and 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 their and their shows have really taken on a life of their own. They still cover that stuff, but. Uh, Rob now co-hosts with uh, Chris Franklin a power record show that that's uh, usually monthly where they play old power record stuff and talk about it. I was a guest on one of those. Uh, you know they have the but the Who's Who podcast I, has my heart and soul. It's my monthly reaffirmation of being a DC fan where they go through Who's Who one issue at a time, one entry at a time. Hmm. So. They talk about everything. It's not like they blow through to get to the big guns. No, they they talk and 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 what's great about it is that it leads to little like minute or two discussions about the character itself. And what it what it proves to me month after month is that I am a DC kid. I like Marvel characters, but DC, especially the DC around the time of Who's Who and 20 years after just completely has my heart. So I cannot recommend those shows enough. Uh, see, he does list all the shows he does at the bottom of his email, and I'll give him some crap about that in a minute. See, I'm thinking, I don't know how we'd work it exactly, but I'm thinking crossover, dude. Because Who's Who and Crisis are, you know, almost like sister books or kissing cousins or whatever the hell analogy you want to use. But, I mean, they, they one begat the other, you know what I mean? Well, uh, they're, they're almost through the first series now, so they're past where Crisis ended. Ah, okay. So, so what I will recommend, not, not not that having both of them on for one of the crossover episodes of something that we're planning might not be a bad idea. Right. But uh, when you listen to the listen to the first issue of who, uh, episode of Who's Who, if you haven't listened to the show yet, and then when we get to our crisis coverage, listen to us and then listen to the second, you know, when we cover the first issue, then listen to the second issue of Christ of Who's Who. And go through their like first thirteen episodes with us, and you're chronologically the same because the first issue of Who's Who came out a month before Crisis started. So, and they talk about how the Crisis impacts Who's Who. So it actually it would be a really good kind of companion piece, right, uh, to each other. I think uh, one of the things about Who's Who, though, that I'm going to warn you, if you haven't listened to the show, uh, we joked about it a couple episodes back. Um, Shag has a thing about all the Earth-X stuff. Because every time they have a character that was on Earth-X, like any of the quality characters, like Phantom Lady or Red Bee or, or anything like that, they take up like an inordinate amount of time in the entry to talk about it, and and apparently it drives Shag up the wall, which just makes me laugh. <laughs> Anything that gives Shag fits makes me laugh. You gotta understand. <laughs> uh, anyways, his, well, uh, real, his... real quick before you get in, I just had a quick question for you. You can even take this out if you want to. I'm just curious. Uh, has Rob on his Power Record show? Do you would you happen to know if he has covered any of the Planet of the Apes Power Records? No, I don't think he has yet. I'm gonna to have to get a hold of him and again see if he might Message be interested in uh, in a uh, in a crossover because very shortly we'll be doing Apes Month and I was kind of thinking about touching on those. I wonder if he would want to do that 
you know, either on his show or some sort of no, crossover between us or something. Seriously, reach out to him because he loves Power Records, so I'm sure. And he is probably about two years younger than you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure Planet of the Apes is part of his uh, lexicon, basically. So uh, I listened to all four of them recently, driving back and forth to work. And while it was such a trip, because I hadn't heard them since I was like a small child, because I never owned any of them, but I had a distant cousin that had, I don't know if he had all of them, but he had some of them. So I remember listening to them. So not only was I, was I geeking out about that, but I made a really pleasant discovery because this voice kept kept tickling the back of my brain like, I know this guy's voice. And all of a sudden it hit me that I'm not sure which character was. I, I think it was Taylor, which is, you know, Charlton Heston's character. Uh, but one of the characters was voiced by the same guy who was the voice of Cap in the old Marvel 60s cartoons. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah, it's a good show. I, I enjoy it. Chris Franklin's an interesting guy. He's got a podcast now because everyone does. <laughs> uh, where he and his wife talk about geeky stuff. So, anyways, Shag's email is uh, the subject line is "Tales of the JSA in My Ears." That's kind of creepy. Hi, Scott and Mike. Catching up on listening on my listening of Tales of the JSA or Tot JSA, as I will now say. <laughs> Loved your the return episode. The new opening is exceptional. Is that the guy from Graphic Audio doing the narration? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> if that guy's name was Scott Rifen, I actually talked to Richard Rowan recently in an, for an episode of something else uh, for another show I do that I won't name because apparently Scott thinks that I plug my other shows too much. Um, I haven't said that in years now. <laughs> I don't forget. Um, and I and I actually, before we got into the interview, I told him about that, and he said that his voice has been mistaken for other narrators as well. So apparently, what goes around comes around. Uh, anyways, uh, really powerful reading. Uh, thank you again to Mr. Scott Rifen of Dinners for Dinner for Geeks. Uh, you know, we're Scott and Jeff, Scott's minion. Uh, Ryan the Toy Geek and Ron just Ron uh, over at Dinner for Geek because if you mention the show you gotta mention all four they get all butthurt <laughs> uh, to answer Scott's question I'd love to hear more Earth 1, Earth 2 co- crossover coverage, the Green Lantern issue was fun for its Silver Age sensibilities would love to hear some additional one-on-one pairings we could probably work that in later Sure. Uh, quick question regarding your eventual crisis coverage, great idea by the way color me very jealous, what will you be covering I know you're covering the pre-crisis monitor appearances, are you tackling all the crossovers even tangential ones like Blue Devil just curious do, do we want to answer that question uh, I'm just going to answer it this way, yes yes, yes. we are yes we are uh, <laughs> We're wanting to play this one close to the vest, folks, because Scott and I have spent the last week planning things out, and it's like two kids, you know, like waiting for Christmas. Mm-hmm. It really is. So uh, keep up the great work. Shag continues. Looking forward to further episodes. Little Birdie told me there is an Ian Carcool episode on the horizon. Really want to hear that one. His constant mentions in the Who's Who is a particular. <laughs> Uh, finally, uh, hearing Scott saying in, 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 in the outro, say, Time Lord blew my mind. Keep it freaky, the irredeemable shag. And he lists the Fire and Water podcast, the Who's Who podcast, the Who True Freaks podcast, a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network, uh, FirestormFan.com, 
And I'm going to add views from the long box since he is one of my semi-regular <laughs> co-hosts, but apparently he doesn't feel the need to do that. So, Ah, oh, talk about your butt hurt. What? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Look, if Shag and I didn't give each other crap in public, I think we'd hurt, like physically hurt. <laughs> so uh, one, of the, one of the great disappointments of... of Dragon Con last year is because of various reasons Shag couldn't make it and it just Aww. wasn't the same. It really wasn't. So uh, hopefully we'll be hanging out um, hanging out this year at Dragon Con, which will which is going to be really hopefully very nice. That makes me feel bad and I, I wasn't even involved in all that. I mean I, I know Shag because of Megacom, because of him doing uh, you guys all doing that dynamic reading of one of our old uh, two true freaks flyers. <laughs> Yeah, Shag, uh, me, and a guy named uh, Ravenface. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wow. So, but uh, we've got more emails, but we're going to save those for later because we want to we want to make sure that the email section is is a uh, is one of our constant things on the show. Uh, so basically, what that means, folks, is uh, keep writing in because we are reading them. Yes, it, you know, it took us a while to kind of get to the point where we had episodes that we didn't record over a year ago (laughs) that you know it's going to make no sense to people listening to it later but in releasing those and editing those and all that it was really weird to to think that we recorded it a year ago but the only reason i knew we had recorded it a year ago was some of the things we mentioned in the episode right so but we have got a couple really awesome issues of All-Star Squadron and an Infinity Incorporated. And for the All-Star Squadron issue, I am turning the reins over to Mr. Scott H. The H stands for Hellbent. <laughs> I am, too. I mean, like as you say, I, I've been like a kid in a candy store this week as, uh, as our coverage grows closer and I, I'm just getting so excited about this again. As a matter of fact, I did something this week that, you know, just a short while ago I was starting to, to fear. I was actually thinking about this before we came back. You know, it it doesn't look like I'm I'm ever going to actually break open that Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, Absolute Edition. It's been sitting on my shelf now for well, at least two years because I bought it when we were originally getting close to starting crisis coverage and, and it's been sitting there, it's, you know, it's still in its shrink wrap and everything. And just this week, I finally cracked that sucker open and, uh, and started to read the, uh, the compendium that's in there. So yeah, I'm telling you, man, psyched, psyched, hell bent. Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, would, you, would you say that that compendium is worth the price of buying the absolute? I would, yeah, I definitely would. It's funny because I had an opportunity a while back to buy just the compendium on uh, on uh, eBay or somewhere, but I held out to actually buy the compendium itself. You know, the or I mean the uh, absolute itself, and I'm glad I did because I, I like the whole presentation of the whole thing. I still haven't uh, cracked open the the absolute itself. I've just been busy reading the uh, the compendium, but I mean just. The, the presentation of the compendium alone is to, is telling me that I'm going to love the absolute so of the you know the panels that are reprinted in there and the color I mean it just looks really sharp I, I think this is going to be my favorite presentation of uh, of crisis because I have it every time it's been reprinted I bought it so yeah but this I have I have them all too <laughs> I think I'm really going to like this I, you know I'm a fan of that big oversized format so so looking forward to it. 
But let me go and uh, dive into this. Uh, I do apologize ahead of time. My synopsis is a little bit long for this one, but I wanted to make sure that I got all the details. And so this is All-Star Squadron number 38. This is the October 1984 issue. It was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, July 26th, 1984. Cover price was a mere 75 cents. Cover credits on this one, it is Rick Hoberg, inked by Jerry Ordway. Really nice cover. It is depicting uh, Amazing Man is back, and he is, uh, he is chained to a burning cross. Now, uh, Amazing Man, just for those that may not be uh, familiar with the character, he is a black man. So, I mean, right there you've got a very uh, inflammatory, well, I was going to say inflammatory cover. That sounds like I'm making a horrible pun. But, uh, you know, just right off the bat, you kind of you get right to the point of what this is going to be about. Right. So, yeah, he's on this burning cross. By the way, I don't know if it's just the way my my color, uh, my uh, cover is colored or what, but he looks like his teeth have been busted out, too. He's does it look that way on your color? I think it's the coloring. But, yeah, it does kind of look like that. He does. He looks like he's missing teeth. Um, and then you have the the floaty heads all around him of uh, Our Man, Commander Steel, Liberty Bell, Green Lantern, Firebrand, and Robot Man looking on. And then in the foreground is this guy that looks like he could be uh, a member of the uh, Team America from Marvel Comics, and he's wearing a white like KKK hood over his head, and he's holding a bullwhip, and he's saying, "This is what happens when one of his kind talks back." a real American, and I can't wait to see this guy get his face kicked in. Also, on the cover, it advertises, bonus, a Golden Age gallery by artist Marshall Rogers. So, digging right into this one, uh, Detroit is Dynamite is the name of the story. It was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Rick Hoberg, and inked in the interiors by Bill Collins and Mike DiCarlo. David Cody Weiss, going simply by Cody in this issue, was the letterer, and Gene D'Angelo was the colorist. In the late February 1942, Midtown Manhattan of Earth 2, an on-the-spot radio reporter gives color commentary on the heroics of Robot Man and Commander Steel as they battle a flame-throwing tank loaded down with the stolen or with stolen cash. The reporter soon finds himself in peril, however, when the tank's turret suddenly turns toward him and it looks as if he's about to be flash-fried. Thankfully, it's Robot Man to the rescue, but at a terrible cost to the metallic do-gooder. His lower half, from the waist down, is completely incinerated, leaving him virtually helpless and directly in the path of the advancing tank. Robot Man resigns himself to his fate, but his teammate and friend, Steele, isn't about to let his buddy end this way and, using micro-motor-powered strength, stops the vehicle, rips off the top hatch, drops down into the crew compartment, and proceeds to chuck the perps out into the street. Steele then checks on his pal, Robot Man, who is understandably upset about having his lower body burned away. It is, <laughs> yeah, that would kind of piss you off, I would imagine. That'd be kind of a downer. He said, it is, uh, it is yet another reminder to poor Robert Crane just how far removed from a normal human being he really is now. 
Steele tries to buck up his friend's spirits, but then overhears a radio broadcast blaring from a nearby car's speakers. It is Lady Lorelei, Nazi sympathizer, reporting on the very events that have just transpired between our heroes and these bank robbers. During the broadcast, Commander Steele is shocked to hear of the capture of U.S. Army Captain Brad Farley by Navy, uh, excuse me, by Nazi, rather, by Nazi forces. He scoops up the legless robot man and hightails it to a deserted alley where he temporarily deposits his teammate and pays a visit to his old flame, Gloria Giles. Only now she is known as Mrs. Brad Farley, wife of the captured army captain. Turns out that Steele just can't stand it anymore, and he reveals his secret ID to his former girlfriend. And he swears to bring her husband back to her if it's the last thing he does. Later, Steele scoops Robot Man back up and proceeds to the JSA's awesome new headquarters at the site of the 1939-40 New York World's Fair. Now, it just strikes me that, granted, this is a completely different World's Fair, but we are covering this now just mere days after the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, the 1964-65 World's Fair, which, of course, held on the same grounds, but completely different fair. Anyway... Entering the Perisphere, they are greeted by Gernsbeck, the robot who serves to further remind Robot Man of his lost humanity. Robot Man's kind of a Debbie Downer in this issue, but, you know, understandable. I mean, he's been badly damaged. While he talks with Steel and uh, prepares to repair his robot bot or his damaged robot body, the pair witness Liberty Bell leaving Johnny Quick's quarters. Ooh, scandalous. Embarrassed, Johnny tries to cover by offering the guys a look at some newsreel footage he and Tubby Watts put together to try to help uh, bring Robot Man up to date on what he missed while he was a captive in Japan. And speak of the devil, our man shows up, as does the tarantula, and the friends all sit down to watch a series of newsreels that serve rather nicely to bring any latecomers, reading reader latecomers, up to speed on recent events in the title. Just about that time, Green Lantern and Hawkman drop in, quite literally, and join in on the recapping. Then things turn deadly serious as Green Lantern presents a little footage of his own, this time focusing on racial tensions in Detroit. The All-Stars are stunned to witness the brutal beating of a black man, who is then chained to a cross, doused with gasoline, and set ablaze. However, this is no hapless, helpless victim. This is Will Everett, the amazing man, and the footage shows him take on the properties of his iron bonds and escape the inferno. Unfortunately, no one has seen him since. Green Lantern calls for the All-Stars to go to Detroit, and Bell agrees, but Commander Steele has to bow out. He explains his promise to his old girlfriend, uh, excuse me, I'm going to say that over again. <clears throat> He explains his promise to his old girlfriend, receives the blessings of the rest of the team, and then, leaving Tarantula on monitor duty, the rest of the group darts to the Trilon, there to board their swanky new ride, the All-Star Special, a modified Curtis XP-55 Ascender aircraft, which lifts off vertically out of, recently out of the recently modified structure and streaks into the sky. See, I thought that was something you got at Waffle House. <laughs> the All-Star Special? Yes. Should have come with bacon. <laughs> Hawkman and GL 
Follow along. See, you think I don't listen to you, but I do sometimes. <laughs> Hawkman what? and GL follow along, flying under their own power and remarking that they can't get to Motor City fast enough. The place is a powder keg just waiting for someone or something to set it off. And at that moment, the fuse is being lit as the soldiers of the Phantom Empire, a group very reminiscent of the KKK, welcomes a new member into their ranks, a quote-unquote hero, a powerful quote-unquote patriotic citizen who will help them regain what is rightfully theirs, who will... Show these black mongrels what happens when they talk back to a real American. And that's this creep's name. Next issue. Nobody gets out of Paradise Valley alive. And that's uh, All-Star number 38. Very good, sir. I knew that was a bit of a long one, but I wanted to make sure we covered the, uh, the pertinent things that happen in the issue. Let's see, historical notes here from the All-Star Companion, Volume 2. We got, let's see, Detroit is Dynamite is cited as the title of a 1942 essay in Life magazine that dealt with the race riot that formed the milieu of issue number 38. The tank prototype which damages Robot Man had been retrieved by the JSA from Japanese spies in number 30, which in turn retold events... Uh, in All-Star Comics number 12. Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick are embarrassed when Steel and Robot Man spy her coming out of Johnny Quick's bedroom. Yeah, I said that. (laughs) Robot Man mentions the Three Stooges because in the 1940s, the main feature at a movie theater was usually preceded by short subjects, newsreels, and animated cartoons. Hawkman is working on his new Miracle Array, uh, first used in Adventure... Did I say Hawkman? You said Hawkman. Oh, whoops. Our man, rather. Our man is working on his new Miracle Array. Uh, first used in Adventure Comics number 71, February 1942. Apparently, ray dependency is better than drug dependency. I don't know. You ever see pictures of that woman that does, like, hits the tanning bed too much? Oh, yes. It's like almost like pitch black. Uh, yeah, that, dude, I live in Florida. Yeah, I see lots of ladies <laughs> that uh, spend a little too much time in his sun. They got skin cancer in their near future. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, some of the narration accompanying the newsreels, having been photostatted into black on white, proved difficult to read. Yeah, it sure as hell did. When a letter writer asks that no stories feature such minor heroes as the Whip, Mr. America, uh, at all. Is that how you say that? At all? E-T-A-L? Is that right? Yeah, that's usually, uh, that's usually when I describe how I finish a meal. <laughs> Roy Thomas replies that the major all-stars will bear the brunt of the action, but that minor heroes will be used when they fit the storyline. And I, you know, why would you write in about something like that? I like the minor guys showing up. Yeah, I mean, that's the entire, you know, the entire point. I know this is supposed to be kind of a JSA. All-Star Squadron itself was kind of supposed to be a JSA feature. Right. But I, I think one of the hallmarks of, of, the, of the series is that eventually Thomas you know, made stars of people like Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick. Absolutely. Uh, who would be considered minor heroes, and now they're major. Mm-hmm. You know? I completely agree. That That's what I like about this book. I didn't know who these people were before I picked up All-Star Squadron. Yeah, keep bringing them forward. I, I like it when they did it with the later incarnations of JSA as well. 
Uh, let's see. The same letter writer suggests avoiding any confrontations with the Japanese to avoid overheated dialogue. Roy Thomas responds that he won't sacrifice historical accuracy to avoid offending oversensitive souls. Uh, Roy, Thoma, Roy Thomas also had his own vision of what All-Star Squadron should be. Well, hell yeah. I like that. And starting with number 38, All-Star Squadron devoted two or three pages each issue to special art relating to World War II superheroes, starting with Marshall Rogers' stunning multi-hero cover for the house-produced Amazing World of DC Comics, number 16, December 1977. And that is a gorgeous piece of art. I don't have a lot of issues of Amazing World of DC Comics, but that is one that I actually own, and uh, I've always loved the cover on that. It's just, it's really a nice piece. It's actually a wraparound cover, as it was originally presented on that book, and then, of course, it's reprinted here um, as kind of a poster image, but it's it's nice. I've always I'd liked love to collect stuff. more of those. Holy crap, are they expensive. They are, yeah. yeah They've got so. wicked expensive. It's funny, because the last one I ever bought... I got for, I think it was like a dollar. And uh, you remember, well, I don't know if you ever went there or not, but there was a place in uh, in Carrollton, Georgia, Quest Comics. And the guy there had just bought a collection, and there was uh, some uh, uh, Amazing Worlds in there. And he just set them out on his table to get rid of them, and he put a dollar a piece on them. And that was the only issue he had that I didn't previously have, so I picked it up. Now I wish I'd bought the whole stack. That was the yeah, last one I ever that. bought, but ever since then, every time I've ever seen them since then, they're crazy expensive. I think he just didn't know what they were. Well, considering your description of that comic <laughs> shop, I would uh, I would agree with that statement. Yeah. Uh, for me, well, one of the one of the best parts of this issue is that a little later I get to use my newsreel uh, announcer voice <laughs> a little bit. Uh, kind of excited about that. But uh, starting with the cover, you can really tell that Ordway inked the faces uh, of the All-Stars watching in horror as uh, Amazing Man is rather subtly put on a cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather subtly, I mean not at all. Especially uh, Our Man and Green Lantern look really like Ordway had a heavy hand in those, which is awesome. This was one of those issues where, and we've gone through them, you know, from time to time, where basically a big event has happened, so now we're kind of taking a breath, stepping back for a second, dealing with some personal matters before we start the next story. Uh, The whole opening with Robot Man and Steel was cool, liked it a a bit. I think at times the art could be a bit stiff. But Rick Hoberg and Bill Collins and Mike DiCarlo, uh, you know, they don't do bad artwork right. uh, at all. Uh, we're going to be seeing a little bit of Hoberg uh, over the next couple of issues. Uh, I really felt bad for Our Man having basically, you know, like his legs melted off. Robot, uh, Robot Man? Robot Man, that's right. Did I say Hawkman? You said Our Man. <laughs> Our Man, see? We, we do know who these people are, just so everybody, just so everyone's aware. <laughs> Uh, but the whole opening sequence was exciting, but I didn't really start getting engaged in the story until Commander Steele went and talked to his former fiance and revealed his identity. And basically, like, I mean, really, this is what you're going to do? You're going to go, you're going to tell this woman who you are, you know, like, I am really your former love, and I'm going to go look for your current love, and when I get back, you get to decide between the two of us. 
Catch you later. <laughs> that was just strange. Uh, but a really uh, a really cool scene because I, I, thinking back on their first meeting in this series, I wasn't a huge fan of her hating Hank, you know, hating Commander Steele uh, because she remi- she reminded him of Hank Haywood. I really want to say the other part of that, but I'm not going to. But Hank Haywood, because that, that felt like really like Stan Lee melodrama Marvel comic stuff. Yep. Uh, not that that's a bad thing, but uh, nice seeing Gurns back. Is you know we we you asked me about this. Is this the first time they named him Gurns? That's I'm thinking it is. I'm thinking this is the first time we've seen him called that. Uh, I also like on page eight that we get a uh, shot of the Parasphere and the Trilon kind of showing what it looks like. I always loved this in comics. Mm-hmm. So uh, always neat to see that again. Uh, Our Man shows up. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Excuse me. Uh, got a little ahead of my notes. Love, love, love Liberty Bell coming out of Johnny Chambers. He's doing the walk of shame, yeah. Yeah. And the great thing about it is that if you know what's going on, you know what's going on. If you were a kid reading this and didn't know what was going on, you were just probably a little confused and you just moved on. Mm-hmm. So I kind of liked that. It was it, It's a subtle way of saying, hey, they were knocking boots about ten minutes ago. <laughs> it, the way all the characters came into the story was kind of organic as too. You know, you have Steel and Robot Man heading to the Parasphere. Then Johnny and Libby show up, and then Tarantula and Firebrand, and then Our Man, and basically everyone's getting together to watch some movies. So, I, I, I kind of appreciated that. Even though my overall opinion of this issue is that it feels like a lot of exposition and not enough new story meat. But at the same time, since it had been a while since we recorded the last issue episodes. It was kind of nice to read all this to get caught up with it. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a. <laughs> it felt good to do that. So after the first newsreels, which basically catch you up on the history of All Star Squadron as a uh, as a book as a title, Hawkman and Green Lantern show up. We hear about Shazam. Uh, I love that shot of Shazam. Yeah, on page fourteen. It's a really good Don Newton esque. Uh, Shazam, really good shots of Mary and uh, Cat Marvel Jr. Mm-hmm. as well. And then we get to the newsreel, the actual newsreel, which you didn't hear me trying to read the other thing as a newsreel because I cut it out. Uh, but <laughs> I I like doing the newsreel voice, so what the hell. Detroit, hub of our nation's defense, where the automobile and related industries are rapidly retooling to turn out the tanks, the guns, the planes necessary to beat the Axis enemy. For several nights now, some white residents have been picketing the unoccupied house of a new Negro housing project, the Sojourner Truth Homes. (laughs) These middle-class homes, the rent already paid, are due to be occupied on February 28th. But that may never happen. Ku Klux Klan and Nazi agents all have been rumored to be working behind the scenes in this troubled city. And on the night of February 25th, our photographer managed to capture these scenes as a car carrying two Negro men accidentally wanders in to the seven-mile Fenelon district. <laughs> Instantly, the car is showered with bottles, blocked and forced to stop. In an attempt to divert attention from the driver, his younger passenger leaps from the auto, only to be grabbed by dozens of hands as the older man flees in terrors, pelted by rocks and bricks. As seen here, the young Negro seems to be holding back, not trying to injure his attackers. But the truth is, there are far too many of them for any one man to fight. 
Within seconds, he is knocked to the ground as the maddened mob continues to beat him, kick him, curse him. Our photographer, helpless to intervene. Then, as if from nowhere, men in purple robes appear, members of the clown-like Phantom Empire, rumored to have taken off where the fanatical Black Legion left off several years ago. The unconscious captive is tied by chains and hoisted on a wooden cross the hooded men supplied, a cross meant for burning. The youth is doused with gasoline, apparently to wake him up, so he will be fully aware of what is to follow. But if the assembled mob expects to laugh at the fear in the doomed man's face, it cannot be prepared for what it sees instead. Not fear, but loathing, contempt, hatred. Next moment, the cigarette lighter is hurled into the gas-soaked timber around the cross, and the flames shoot high. Then suddenly, the unexpected. As these pictures show, somehow inexplicably, the threatened man seems to have taken on a metallic cast, almost as if he had become the same texture as his iron change, which he now tears loose in an astonishing feat of desperate strength. As masked and unmasked men scatter like the wind, no trace of him living or dead has been seen since. <laughs> I like that. That was a good dramatic reading. I, uh... I was rather disturbed by this part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because this stuff happened. <laughs> it did. It, uh, the, the Sojourner Truth Homes, named after a poetess uh, from the Civil War era, uh, there, there was a lot of unrest in Detroit around this time period in American history. It's not a particularly proud bit of American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am really both impressed and surprised, but mostly impressed that Thomas chose to deal with this head on. Uh, he didn't use a whole lot of racial epithets, um, but he really got the point across that, you know, there were people, wrong-headed people, uh, who unfortunately exist to this day, uh, that were trying to prevent these people from getting their homes just because of the color of their skin. And that's, uh, it's just kind of despicable, which is why when we get kind of to the end of the issue and we're introduced to the real American, uh, it, it always bothers me to see a villain like this. Uh, you know, haven't read the, the next issue in a while, so I don't know how two-dimensional Thomas is going to play the guy. It turns out to be G.I. Joe, I, I just, just to warn you ahead of time. <laughs> but I always hate seeing people who feel the way that this phantom empire feels cloaking their, their champion in the red, white and blue and promoting hate and intolerance. It just bothers me. It angers me on a level. I can't really even adequately express, uh, which is why seeing this guy getting the crap kicked out of him will probably be very, uh, (laughs) very satisfying in the end i hope it is i suspect it may not be only because in reading the stuff that that you and i have been reading to prepare for big things coming down the road i was reminded of something i had completely forgotten that this guy has ties to uh yeah yeah so a certain character yeah so I'm hoping there is a satisfactory resolution to the second half. I honestly cannot remember. But yeah, it's just... Uh, it just bugs me to see those colors wrapped in, in hate, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's just... It, what, what's we got really past sh- that. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's really a shame, too, is that... Um, 
you know, if it wasn't for for one that he's a racist asshole, but also that he has a, uh, a, a literally a Ku Klux Klan white hood over his head, I actually kind of dig the look of the real American. He kind of reminds me, you know, his outfit kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, the, there was a, a Wonder Woman show before, or not show, but a movie before the Linda Carter show. Oh, with Kathy with Lee uh, Crosby. Kathy Lee Crosby. His outfit vaguely reminds me of her outfit on that show. Maybe it's the, the you know, the spangles up the legs or something. But I actually think if it wasn't for that hood over his head, he'd actually look kind of cool. But, you know, it's this combination. As you say, you see this guy that looks very cool. He's very, you know, sort of Captain America, Commander Steel, Wonder Woman looking, and you know, spang- you know star-spangled guy. Yet he's the just the worst kind of character, you know, as yeah. far as his, you know, as far as his personal character, you know, just being this this racist ass, and it and it does it irks you. But I think that's what it's supposed to do. I think oh, it's supposed to Absolutely. piss you off a little bit, you know. Yeah, I, I just um, the problem with most of these villains, though, is that they're kind of like paper tigers. Eventually, right? Kind of like uh, straw men characters, meant for the character to sit there and beat down. But um, so I'm hoping that when I read, because I haven't read this issue until. Since, you know, like 1990, uh, since 2000 or so. So it's been, you know, about 15, 14 years since I've really dug into this storyline. And I do have one very specific memory that we'll go into uh, when we get to it. Because there's a line that Green Lantern delivers to this guy uh, that that stuck with me. But I, I just, as much as you don't want to read people espousing things that are just awful in any consideration. And I'm trying to be kind of sensitive about the whole thing, but you know, as much as you don't want to hear people using racial slurs and stuff like that, on the other hand, you kind of have to have that happen if the character is going to be presented as a fully realized character. Right. Uh, I disagreed with everything that, uh, what was his name? I can't, he played Bruce Banner and I can't remember his name. Uh, in the Incredible Hulk movie. Oh, um, nah. Ed Norton? Ed Norton. Edward Norton was in a movie called uh, American History X, which is a powerful, powerful film. And he plays kind of a reformed white supremacist. But when they do the flashbacks where he's sitting there, you know, going through his spiel, especially before he and a group of people attack a local convenience store that's owned by an Asian guy, he delivers a speech that is just full of hate. But the way he delivers it is with such conviction that I didn't agree with what he said, but I could see how somebody of a certain mindset would buy into everything he says. Right. And that made it a fully more realized character and more engaging. And while you still hate it, you can still kind of appreciate the way they were able to portray the character, you know, uh, you know, in something that you're watching, you know, strictly speaking for entertainment. So I'm hoping we get more of that 
even though the stuff that he's going to say is going to be reprehensible, rather than just the straw man, bad guy, racist that the heroes beat on, which is satisfying, but not as satisfying as a more fully realized story, if that makes any sense. No, yeah, it does. I know exactly what you mean. I don't think we're going to get that, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember getting that either. But, uh, at the same time, it was really cool to see the new, uh, modified Curtis XP 55. Yes. The, the plane. I, I want this playset and I want this, uh, vehicle and I want these action figures. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I want the playset to open up so that you can put the ship inside. <laughs> Because that is kind of awesome. So, it's like, he ends on this really fun note, and at the very end, oh, racism. Thank you. (laughs) But, uh, oh, really loved the the two-page splash of the the 40s characters by Marshall Rogers. Isn't that awesome? Just a beautiful image. Boy, Shining Knight looks weird. Yeah. Um, Because I think that's his original costume. But, no, just the... Marshall Rogers could not draw an unattractive Batman. And in the sixth issue of Secret Origins, he and Roy Thomas did a new version of the case of the Chemical Syndicate. And it's just gorgeous to look at. But Superman looks good. Even Black Condor looks good. Well, it's Um, got your favorite down there, the... uh, uh the Guardian and the Newsboy oh, yes. Legion. The Guardian, the Newsboy Legion. Love that. Love Uncle Sam with his sleeves rolled up, ready to. Well, he looks like he's kicking back, but he also looks like he's ready to beat some ass. Mm-hmm. So, uh, got the vigilante looking boss on the uh, motorcycle, Black Hawk parachuting in. Just everything that is cool about the Golden Age characters. Some native to DC, some bought by DC later, just all together. Just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful image. What's funny is that for the longest time, I actually thought that this image was by um, Walt Simonson because I still think that Mary Marvel looks particularly Walt Simonson to me. I can see that, especially the way the skirt's kind of flowing up and yeah. in her face. But then I yeah, see I that see some Simonson in there. But then I see that Batman getting out of the car. And yeah. like, no, 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 that's definitely Marshall <laughs> Rogers. His Golden Age Superman was really good as well. Yeah, I would have, uh, I would have dug a, I would have dug a Golden Age story drawn by him, a world's finest Golden Age story, uh, done by Marshall Rogers. But have you ever read that Secret Origins issue with the Batman? I'm sure I have. I can't remember it, but I, I mean, I own it, and I'm, I, I read that title for the first couple of years. So I'm sure I have. I just can't remember it. Just a beautiful. It was reprinted in one of those greatest Batman stories ever told. Uh, DC started doing those again a couple years ago with the Alex Ross covers. Right. It's in volume two of that. It actually leads off volume two. So should be rather easy to track down. I think the entire collection is worth it just for that reprint because it's a, it's a stunning retelling of not only the case of the Chemical Syndicate, which is Batman's first appearance, but also the expanding of that two-page legend of Batman, who he is and how he came to be. Right. But drawn by Marshall Rogers. Sweet. So no, nothing against Bob Kane. Because uh, I recently reread the original K- 
case of the Chemical Syndicate, and it really holds up both artistically and writing wise. But it was just just a, of of all the retellings of that story, that Secret Origins issue is my favorite. That's pretty much all I got on this one. I think I've rambled on long. <laughs> I just have a few notes on this one. Um, I'll be honest, based solely on the cover of this one, I was really dreading this issue. I was really dreading it because I thought that this was going to be yet another, um, you know, Roy Thomas kind of lecturing to us a little bit or kind of preaching to us a little bit because we had that with the issues that we've covered already that that dealt with, uh, you know, the the feelings of, well, you know, honestly, kind of the racial tensions uh, of the team members, Firebrand in particular, towards the Japanese and the yeah, a little heavy-handed. Yeah, and it and it was so. I didn't remember liking this story, and I was afraid of just getting more of that heavy-handedness and everything, and the the preachy kind of thing, and not what I got at all. And I ended up really loving it because. As soon as I got about midway through the story, really about the time that they got to the headquarters, you know, with the Parisphere and the Trilon, and you get that nice cutaway image of the headquarters and everything, it suddenly occurred to me. Now, I have been hoping against hope, all as we've been covering this series, that if and when we got to whatever was my first issue of All-Star Squadron, that it would jog a memory and that I would remember. I can't say with absolute 100% assurity, but I'm pretty sure. I think this was my first issue. And I think so just for a number of things that happen in this particular issue, like the cutaway of the Parisphere and... Gurn's back greeting uh, Robot Man and, and Commander Steel as they come into the headquarters. The All-Star Special lifting off out of the Trilon. Just a number of things that happen in this that made me just literally like pump my fist and be like, hell yes, this is the All-Star Squadron that I remember. This is the one that, when I think of the All-Star Squadron, this is the things that I think of. I think of the Parasphere and the Trilon and the ship and all this stuff. So... I wouldn't be at all surprised if if this was actually my first issue. And so for that reason alone, yeah, not a lot happens in it. Yes, it's very exposition heavy, but damn, did I like it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Plus, while you don't really get him, you know, you, you definitely don't get him in his costume. You don't get him doing anything particularly heroic. We do, you know, through the newsreel footage, we do get to see Amazing Man. And I I just, I really like that character. Now, not to get on my own soapbox or preach or anything, but I just got to say, you know, not long ago, uh, once again, I saw one of those threads on Facebook where somebody was going off about black characters. And I think it had something or other to do with the, the recent you know news of the casting of Johnny Storm and the Fantastic Four movie and all that. And I don't want to get into any of that. But the subject of black <laughs> yeah, characters... Avoiding that like Yeah, the yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the subject came up of, you know, well, you know, what are they supposed to do? There's not any great black characters out there. Bull! I, 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 compl- I call complete bull on that. Amazing man. Or not yeah, Amazing Man, Amazing no Man. I have to always draw that distinction. There's Amazing Man, and then there's Amazing Man. Amazing Man is a great black character. I like Amazing Man. I like him in this form. 
and I like him years later when we would get his grandson in uh, in Extreme Justice. I like that one too. So it was really cool to see him here. I'm glad he's coming, you know, back into the story, and uh, and I hope he'll stick around. Uh, let's see. That's pretty much it on my notes. I had a lot of the same ones that you did, honestly, because I also mentioned the uh, the Golden Age Gallery. And, uh, you know, Gernsback, this being the first time. The last thing I really have for this is, while I will completely agree with you that there are several spots where the art's a little stiff, um, I kind of put that at the feet of the inkers, to be quite honest with you. I love the art in this. I really, really enjoyed it. I actually am a big Hoberg fan, and I will, you know, I will completely cop to the fact that that's probably because he did uh, a lot of work on early issues of Marvel Star Wars, but I like his style. And uh, particularly the opening sequence with Steel and Robot Man fighting the tank, I just, I like how he makes Robot Man look like he's made of metal. I I just, there was something about the artwork that I really enjoyed, but uh, yeah, I dug this. I thought it was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to... uh, to where we're going from here. Hopefully this whole thing with uh, racist America or whatever the hell they were called will get wrapped up real quick and we'll get, you know, racist America, whatever they were called. You know, I just want, I want to get past this whole that thing. Was, that was the less popular spinoff of team America <laughs> from Marvel. Uh, they just didn't, didn't really work out all that well, except in certain sections of the country. Oh, I hope he jumps through a ring of fire on a motorcycle in the next <laughs> issue though. And his hood catches on fire, and he's <laughs> scarred beyond belief because he's a. That's he's why a that that's why he became the Black Rider or whatever. What was this? <laughs> what was the guy? No, don't you remember? They were mutants. Oh no, were they really? Yes, you don't remember that? I, yeah, they were. I, Team America was in early issues of new of New Mutants. They were mutants, and Black Rider was some kind of manifestation of their power. Oh, Lord, see, yeah, see, I, actually, I read that and went no. <laughs> I actually thought that they were cool when they debuted in Captain America because, of course, that was about the time that Cap got his his cool Captain America motorcycle. And then as soon as they broke out on their own and got their own first issue and everything, I was like, no, no, they're actually not too cool. It was really Captain America and Mike Zek that were making them look cool. They actually were not cool at all. it's one of those things, it's a good example of a, of a group of characters, because while I, I, I am a fervent believer in the fact that there is no such thing as a bad character, uh, you know, it's just how a writer deals with that character, I'm a big believer in that, I am as much of a believer in some characters and concepts don't deserve their own series. Right. Like, they, they work well as guest stars or part of a larger team, but you really don't want to see them in their own adventures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember reading those issues of Cap with Team America, and they were kind of cool because they were just guest stars in Captain America, and they were motorcycles, and, you know, yeah, they were probably about a decade late to kind of, you know, cash in on the whole Evil Knievel thing, but it was still kind of cool to have these stunt riders, and there was this mysterious character, and ooh, uh, probably would have made a really great, like, 12, you know, like TV series that didn't last a season but was kind of fun, you know, with a Mike Post uh, theme song. But, uh, yeah, it just didn't work <laughs> well on their own. It's just like, uh, That was around the time of US 1 as well, so. Uh, anyways, I guess we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, I'm going to talk about Infinity Incorporated number 7. Sweet. Right now, there are only two Kryptonians left in the universe. 
And as far as Superman's concerned, that's one too many. <laughs> Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Trent is Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trent is Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Now we are going to jump forward in time about 40 years, give or take, and Mike is going to give us a synopsis on an issue of Infinity Incorporated. Yes, this is Infinity Incorporated number 7 that had a $1.25 cover price, meaning it was a little, about 50 cents more expensive than any of the other books on the shelf at the point, but I think the uh, the quality of the actual production of the book was well worth that. Plus, this was a uh, direct-only book. I don't think this ever really made it to the newsstand. Right. So, 
Past Glories, Future Tears. It was released on July 19th, 1984. This is part of the Generation Saga, Part 7, as a matter of fact. Roy Thomas, writer-editor, Jerry Ordway and Mike Macklin, illustrators, Dan Thomas, co-plotter, Cody, letterer, Adrian Roy and Anthony Tallon, colorists. And uh, every, uh, every issue of Roy's books had quotes. This one has... Famous last words of Filmland, including Filmland, including "Mother of Mercy." Is this the end of Rico? Made it, Ma. Top of the world and Rosebud. <laughs> so we open. Well, I'll just I'll just read the opening because I think it does a better job than I could have. Over the years since he first set up shop in 1939, the ever more powerful brain of the ultra humanite has arrested an ever stranger bodies: an invalid scientist, a movie actress, a gigantic insect, and now. A mutated white ape. Perhaps with time, these crani- cranial transplants have somewhat warped his perspective. For now, in place of his former quests of mere power and money, he has given primacy to an intense desire for revenge. Revenge upon his arch-foe Superman, upon the JSA, and upon the new young heroes known as Infinity Incorporated. The Humanites monitoring devices show him that there is no hint of life from the Star-Spangled Kid and Brave Wayne Jr. meeting his avalanche did its job and killed them. He muses on how the other eight heroes that make up Infinity Incorporated will soon be out of the way thanks to their parents and mentors in the JSA. He had spent years searching for the stream of ruthlessness, and no matter which of them kills the other, he will emerge as the victor. With no one to stop him, the ultra-humanite waits for the television networks to interrupt their programming with the announcement that an Infinitor, or jsa is dead. When they are gone, he will go with Plan B, the conquest of the world. And in case you are curious, the steps to those, uh, the conquering the world to the ultra-humanite, step one, steal all underpants. Step three, take over the world. <laughs> That step two is a little fuzzy at this point. (laughs) We cut to Metropolis, which is encased in a strange bubble. Andrew Vinson is covering the story for UBS and reports on how Power Girl and Superman are flying at each other at breakneck speeds. When they collide, Power Girl is immediately knocked out of the bubble. Andrew tries to interview Power Girl, but after a terse no comment, she flies back toward her power-mad cousin. He also threatens to extract the teeth of one of his engineers when the guy makes a rude crack about Power Girl, which I kind of appreciated. Andrew's a stand-up guy. Power Girl arrives just in time to see Superman rip rip the star off the Daily Star building. She tries to reason with her cousin, but his response is just great. You know, I always like to read, like, a pissed-off Superman. That should be the least of your worries, Kara. See those human ants down there scurrying from the falling debris? Well, that's just for openers. Before I'm done tearing down Metropolis and rebuilding it in the image of Kryptonopolis, capital of our home world, there'll be no place for any of them to hide. <laughs> he throws the star, which Power Girl catches, and throws back at Superman. They start exchanging blows again, with the fight growing more and more savage as it rips through Metropolis. Superman beats on his cousin again and again, even giving her a two-fisted pounding to the face. Power Girl seemingly gives up and tells Superman to do whatever he wants. Andrew reports that the military has moved in as we switch scenes to see Jade, Obsidian, and Nuclon dropping Fury off at her house. She calls out for her parents, but, you know, with her mother acting crazy, which probably led to her dad going after her mother, she has the place to herself. 
Fury thinks how difficult it will be to find out what her mother truly desires, as she didn't really know her all that well at all, even going so far as to mention that Hector, Silver Scarab, had to help her pick out Wonder Woman's Christmas gifts, which is kind of weird. She looks through some old photo albums when a noise coming from a nearby window distracts her. Fury spots two shadowy figures trying to break in, and he and she attacks only to find that it's Silver Scarab and Northwind. Unfortunately, Northwind is uninjured. <laughs> they tell her that thanks to a mention in the journal of Hector's mother, they figure Hawkman is probably after some ancient relic. Fury discovers a news clipping about the same exhibit that Scarab suspected that his father would want to rob, and they are off. Meanwhile, at the museum, our heroes are heading for Hawkman and Wonder Woman are busy busting up the joint. They talk, they knock out the guard that was uh, kind of useless to begin with, and when they find the staff of Horus, which apparently has the power to grant immortality, Hawkman double crosses Wonder Woman and binds her wrists with handcuffs. I just want to say, my name is Horus. <laughs> at this. <laughs> Fat kid, R.I.P. Um, at this point in time, if a man ever managed to bind an Amazon's wrists together, she lost all her power. To add insult to injury, Hawkman had coated them with ninth metal, and with Wonder Woman taken care of, and by taken care of, I mean floating out the window, Hawkman sets about getting the staff. Outside, Northwind and Scarab find and free Wonder Woman, which is a really bad idea. Inside, Fury and Hawkman fight a bit before Hawkman knocks Fury to the ground and raises his mace into the air with the intent to just beat the holy hell out of her. The Silver Scarab arrives just in time to reduce the mace to slag, but he is soon knocked out of the way by Wonder Woman, who has her own score to settle with the elder Mr. Hall. Northwind tries to capture Wonder Woman with a net, but the Amazonian princess tears through the net uh, with ease. She picks up the statue of Horus and throws it towards a man that has just run into the room. It crashes into him, and Wonder Woman is distraught. See, she wasn't trying to steal the staff for herself. Her fondest wish was that her husband, Steve Trepper, the man lying on the ground broken and battered, would be kept from growing old. But in seeking out immortality for her, from her husband... She has become his angel of death. Going to the historical notes in All-Star Companion Volume 4. The only note, this issue also includes a pinup and vital stats data sheet of The Huntress by Mike Macklin and Joey Cavalieri, then writer of her solo series. Th that's all they have. Does it say who did the, uh, the art on that picture? Uh, Mike Macklin, apparently. Oh, okay, it's just Macklin by himself. Yeah, which is probably why it kind of looks like Ordway, but not really. Because they had a... They co their styles complemented each other rather nicely. <laughs> See, I thought it looked pseudo-Staten. I, I mean, I, I could tell it's not, but it almost looked like somebody, like, aping Staten, maybe? But I, I do like it. I can kind of see that. It had kind of an Ordway feel to it as well, yeah. but that Batman and Robin kind of throw everything off. Yeah, they look funny. So, but it's it's a nice pinup. It is. Uh, I don't know if I'd want it as a poster, but as something for a back of a comic, I, I was rather impressed. This looks like a good like who's who piece. Yeah. So, what do you got on this one? I really don't have much at all. Um, I like the uh, the two page spread, pages two and three where we, we've got 
<laughs> Ultra looks really kind of like like he's, I still say he looks a lot like the Bumble from Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. A little bit, yeah, I can see that. But you know, he's he's thinking his way through the recap of what's you know what's happened so far. But I do like the two page spread. You know, it, it places all the characters you know where we left them essentially, catches you up on everything. I love the fight between Superman and Power Girl. I especially like that it spills over into the uh, the train yard. Because mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me a little bit of the scenes in The Incredibles when uh, when Mr. Incredible was working out and rigging yeah. his physique and everything. But it just works. I mean, this is a fight with a Superman that doesn't care about collateral damage at all. So I like these kind of fights. And he's, you know, he, he knocks a building over on her. He punches her through a freight car. You know, when he punches her out of the dome, she smashes into military vehicles and just utterly destroys them. So it's giving you a sense of just how much power there is behind the blows that he's delivering to her. And he does mess her up. I mean, he leaves her bruised and bloodied at the end of the fight. And this settles once and for all who's the tougher of the two because he pounds her down and she really doesn't do anything to him at all. So I I liked that. I thought that was really good. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. I have a note... Page 16. Oh, yes. Page 16, panel one. I just love this shot of Hawkman and Wonder Woman breaking through the wall. It's just I've seen a good number of busting through a brick wall gags done in comics. Very few of them ever really look all that great. This one looks really fantastic. I like this. That's a really nice piece of art. Uh, Page 19. Uh, My note for this is simply Norda sucks. And yes, he does. Page twenty. No one likes him. No, no. I, I have yet to ever hear anybody rush to his defense. So I think that says something. And Watch. <laughs> we'll open up after this episode is released. We'll open up the emails and there'll be like fifteen from the <laughs> appreciation. Leave no alone. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, page twenty one. The last page of the story. Not only is this a great piece of art that uh, I really like, I love the use of uh, of the black space or negative space or whatever the hell they call that. But I, I really like the look here. Um, but I just have to say, um, ambulance. Yeah. Uh, anyone? Ambulance. I'm not dead. <laughs> ambulance. <laughs> I need some help. I can't move. My ribs feel. All broken inside. I can't feel my so, legs. So Norda looks like satisfied. Like, you know, Fury's crying, <laughs> Wonder Woman's crying, Silver Scarab looks a little upset. <laughs> and Norda's like, I never liked him anyway. Damn straight. <laughs> um, I'm like you, I really don't have a whole lot. The cover is wonky. Because Superman is all disproportionate, yeah. you know, like out of proportions, and you know, I, I'm yeah, I, you will never find anybody who you will find very few people. Let me say that that appreciate Jerry Ordway as an artist more than I do. Uh, but this this cover is just really kind of weird, and you know, the two page splash is awesome. You're right, he in a uh, Ultra Humanoid you know, does look like he should be like on the island of Misfit Toys, <laughs> um, but. As, as cool as the fight is, there is one page, page seven. What is up with Power Girl's arms and breast on that top panel? <laughs> Her arms are all like plastic manny. 
It's it's like suddenly Power Girl is like ancient. Yeah, that does look funny. So, but no, but the fight itself is great. Uh, few people drew the Golden Age Superman better than Jerry Ordway did. Uh, I love the S, and you're, it's, I'm a little. It's almost like the Dick Grayson Helena fight from the previous issue. Yeah. It's kind of disturbing how he beats on her. But it's really awesome, even though when she flies away, which is, you know, probably part of a larger plan. Power Girl is just basically. They've had their differences in the past, and we've chronicled those differences in early episodes of this series. But. To see them, you know, her trying to kind of reason with her cousin instead of being all angry with him was kind of touching in a way. You know, this was a very personal fight. Like the Robin Huntress fight was a personal fight. Page 11, I love that shot of Superman laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, page, uh, page 13, Ly- Lila's going through the, uh, the photo album after basically on the previous page admitting that she really didn't know her mother all that well. Now, okay, I don't have a whole lot of photo albums lying around. And uh, I don't know if you have a whole lot of photo albums lying around. When I was a kid, we had photo albums in the house of, like, when my sisters and I were, were, were younger. You know, when we were babies. None of them ever had captions <laughs> right. written under them. So, but that's not weird. The weird part is Steve and me, Diana, 1941. Etta and me. Diana, does she really have to put that in there? Well, she might forget she... who she is, you know. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I don't know why that stood out to me, but I was just like, huh? Uh, page 15, all the alarms they got rigged up for the exi- ex- exhibit. Not much for old Gus to do. Might as well catch some shut-eye. You, sir, is what is wrong with the security guard industry. <laughs> oh, before that, page 14, uh, Norda, shut up. No one cares what you have to say. <laughs> That's very mean. Uh, Hawkman's a prick, and I think we've gone over that before, but him double-crossing Wonder Woman was actually kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I what a bastard. It was just like, how did you think you two were going to work together when you're both under the thrall of the stream of ruthlessness? Well, I like that she crushes his larynx in the second panel of page 19. Yeah, no doubt. He's it's uh yeah. How did Hawkman take Fury down? I mean, I see how it physically happened. I don't know how it physically happened. Right. How how did kneeing her in the stomach do anything to her? She's part Amazon. She should be able to toss this guy around like a rag doll. But I mean, is he any stronger than a regular human being? I don't know, does the nth metal give him <sighs> more strength? Probably. Hell, he's uh, probably re- stronger than Superman with his goddamn nth metal, so... <laughs> well, remember, as uh, Sean Angle once said... Are you on your feet all day? Does the contact pounding cause your ankles, knees, and back to ache? Hi, Carter Hall here for the world's greatest insult, nth metal gel. Why am I smashing my hand with this face? to show you the amazing protection you get from Nth Metal Gel. And this hammer is real. The same gel technology is used in our Nth Metal Gel insoles. If you have sore, tired, aching feet, Nth Metal Gel absorbs more shocking pressure than any other insoles. Unlike regular insoles that break down over time, 
Hint metal gel was injected into the areas that provide pressure relief when you need it most. The heels and balls of your feet. The gel never breaks down. And when impact occurs, the insole soaks up the shock, and the force now ripples throughout the gel pads. No regular insoles can do that. Even after continuous pounding, these M&Ms don't break. Imagine the relief you'll feel in all kinds of shoes. They even work in calf-high hawk boots. I use them, and they work. Talk about shock absorbency, I'm going to run over my hand with a 6,000-pound car. That's the power and protection of Nth Metal Gel. Whether you're a runner, a professional, or a reincarnated Egyptian hero, you deserve the comfort of Nth Metal Gel. Stop spending hundreds on inferior insoles. Remember, nothing protects a shock quite like Nth Metal Gel. Call now and get a pair of our Nth Metal Gel insoles for only $29.99. But that's not all. We'll also send you a pair of our Nth Metal Gel inserts free. They're perfect for dress shoes and casual wear. But I'm still still not done. Call right now and we'll double the offer. Just pay separate shipping and handling. That's right, you'll get two sets of insoles and two sets of inserts, a $90 value, all for $29.99. Here's how to order. To order by phone, have credit card information, other state name, social security number, and your date of birth on hand when you call 1-585-267-5873. That number again is 1-585-267-5873. Order online, head over to jujufreaks.lipson.com and order via the PayPal link on that site. Order via email... Scan a copy of your credit card, front and back, and send it over to with your mother's maiden name, social security number, and date of birth to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. And the medal is a registered trademark of Monzo Corp in Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. So, but uh, other than the last page, which, uh, on one hand, yeah, ambulance, but two, it's a really good image. Yeah. It's a really stark way to end. I love all the n- negative black space in the back, kind of highlighting what's going on with the main characters. And I kind of like that, once again, Thomas and Thomas have given the hero who's under the thrall of the Stream of Ruthlessness, they've given them something that is personal that they want to steal. Like, Superman's just after power. You know, he's just wanting to tear the place up and rebuild Krypton, which is, which you can see with, with a character like Superman, but there's no honor behind that. But Robin wanting to kill Boss Zuko and Wonder Woman wanting to grant her husband immortality so that he'll live longer and be with her. I mean, that's, that's kind of sweet in a way. Mm-hmm. So it was a really strong way to end an issue that was entertaining, just not too much to say about it. Right. So, uh, I, I I like the Generation Saga. I, I I think it's fair to say that as good as some of the stories that are to follow are, I don't think the series ever really lived up to what the story was. But as we head deeper and deeper into the Generation Saga, I get I get really I get more and more sucked in. And this was the issue when I first bought these comics back in '95 that I really wanted to get to because it was Superman versus Power Girl, right? Uh, and that fight was very satisfying. You know, she she got beat down, but she she didn't give up, and she kind of gave as good as she got. So, uh, anyways, that's all I have for this one. Uh, not too many ads to talk about, really. This time, I mean, we've got the the Mario Brothers ad that we discussed 
uh, in the last episode. But really, do you see any ads that are like that stand out? I, I didn't. I didn't make a note on any of them. They were all kind of just, just kind of there, you know. I mean, you got a Swamp Thing subscription ad, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And thanks, Heap from Superman. So I guess that leads to what would usually be us going to elsewhere in the DC multiverse, but we're doing something a little different this time. Well, what I had kind of kind of decided for this, if, if we have a name for this segment, I would still say it was elsewhere in the DC multiverse, but this is elsewhere in the DC multiverse crisis management edition. That's that's kind of how I envision this because as you know folks, we are we are now well into the uh the setup for Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is the where we are essentially covering what we call the pre-crisis monitor appearances because a character called the monitor was popping up all over the DC multiverse. And I do say multiverse because he would pop up in stories set in Earth 1, Earth 2, uh, sometimes uh, you know back in time, sometimes forward in time. He was all over the place. So we've been looking at those. But now as we hit this month, this is when we are truly hot and heavy into it because the monitor is all over the place. So... You know, the first few Monitor uh, appearances that we did, we did in standalone episodes, but Mike and I had talked and we had decided that rather than devote entire episodes to what is often just a panel or two appearance by this guy, or sometimes, as, as is the case with uh, one or two of the books that we're going to discuss here in a moment, uh, the Monitor it didn't even appear. He was just a mention in the book. Rather than devoting entire episodes to that and slowing ourselves down that much more, that we are reading this material, we are going through the issues, but essentially we're just going to give you the pertinent part of the story. How does the monitor play into this whole thing? So that was kind of the approach that we took on this. So essentially we're going to be taking a look at the issues. I'm going to give you these synopses from the uh, official crossover. Actually, I think it was the, uh, yeah, the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. And then kind of discuss the monitor's role in each issue, and then any notes that we have on those uh, particular issues. That pretty much cover it, Mike? I think that does a better job than I could have. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I don't know what order you have yours in here. The first one I had up was uh, Flash number 338. Oh, God. Yeah. All right, so, so the synopsis, and granted, these synopses are not long, folks. These are the synopses, again, out of the crossover index and they're they're short and sweet because they're just giving you the monitor portion of the story, not what the actual issue was all about. So, synopsis for this one. The Monitor and Lila supply the villains of Flash's rogues gallery with futuristic armor that turns Doofus Ratchet, mental patient, into Big Sur, super mental patient, or I mean super villain. And this is uh, this is my note here. Part one of two back-to-back pre-crisis monitor appearances in Flash, which means next month, uh, you know, three thirty-nine will also discuss because the monitor actually does appear in that. The monitor's role, you can find him on pages twenty and twenty-one. Neither the monitor nor Lila appears in this issue, but both are discussed by the Flash's enemies as they employ his services. The Mirror Master. Uh, goes to an abandoned building where he finds a note from the monitor in a crate containing the outfit the villains give to Doofus to turn him into Big Durr, 
or Big Sur. <laughs> what do you got for notes on this one? I imagine they're humdingers. <sighs> um, okay, R- real notes. Uh, in pages 14 and 15, we see a man struck by lightning. <laughs> And uh, he gets up and, you know, kind of like, you know, foreshadowing is done that this person is going to be important. Um, that's when Iris West takes over this guy's body. Ah. Because he becomes a juror on the Flash's trial. And in 350, it's revealed that Iris West never died. Her, per- her, brain- her personality was just transported to the future, where she's from originally, by the way. And if you didn't know that... Oh yeah, by the way, Iris West is really from the future. Um, so that's what's going on. There's also something up with Flash's lawyer, and I and since I've never read the the whole trial of the Flash storyline, which I guess at some point I have to, uh, I don't know what her deal is. So that was kind of an interesting thing to read about. Other than that, basically, and I'm not trying to insult Carrie Bates, he created a. Re- kind of not a mental a mentally handicapped supervillain and my big question is how did they get him into that outfit <laughs> who undressed doofus and put him in that suit and it's really sad that the thing that my big takeaway from that is that they killed a mouse and that really made me mad like you know that that's cruel you guys you guys aren't Damn it, Captain Cold. I know you're doing it to get them all pissed off at the Flash. Uh, I do appreciate, though, Infantino's effort to make Big Sur like a compelling villain on page 22. Uh, it still just doesn't work, that outfit. it's it, it, it's it, it looks like he's off to a leather bar or something. <laughs> it's just, there is nothing good about Big Sur. I just want... I mean, his name is Doofus. They named the character Doofus. The only other time I ever saw that was on DuckTales. <laughs> <laughs> so, I really... I mean, it, was, it wasn't It was a bad issue, but, man, I was just like, wow, I, I shaved my legs for this. <laughs> Meaning, I read this for the monitor appearance, and there wasn't all that much of a monitor. No. No, not so much. Uh, you know, it occurs to me that I think I've taken a lot of grief over the years for my stand on The Flash. And people are always asking me just what my beef with with uh, Barry Allen is, anyway. So, this, if it pleases the court, is Exhibit <laughs> A, right here. And, you know, actually, come to think of it, this is more like Exhibit B, because not long ago, didn't we cover Showcase number 4 on Comics Monthly Monday? I think you did. And he fought a mentally challenged person in that story, his very first story. So what the hell is it with Barry Allen beating up on (laughs) on mentally handicapped people? I mean, are you that insecure with yourself, dude, really? Anyway, I joke, but it really is pitiful. Big Sur, really? Um, The art in this is absolutely atrocious, and that is for all the people that are always giving me shit about my stance on Carmine Infantino as it pertains to Marvel Star Wars. 
I'm not a, a Carmine Infantino apologist. I actually like his work on Marvel Star Wars. I, I genuinely do. But I've said before, when I see art that I don't like, I'll point it out. I don't like this. I think it's really, really not good. And I don't know whose fault it is. I don't know if it's Infantino. I don't know if it's McLaughlin, the, the anchor, or it's a combination of the two. But it's just, it ain't good Infantino. This is why I have the prejudice I do against the Barry Allen Flash, because this is the stuff they were putting out when I was coming up as a comics fan. I just can't get into it. I didn't like the story. I didn't like the art. I just really didn't find anything at all compelling or interesting other than that very last page, as you pointed out, Mike, with uh, with the Flash and his lawyer. Yeah, something weird is going on there. I'd, I would like to actually know a little bit more about that, but mm-hmm. that was about it, really. Um Last note I've got for this, page three, I hate, hate sideways pages in comics. I even hated it when John Byrne did it. I don't Mm. like sideways pages. It makes me nuts. And at least if you're going to do it, do it through the whole damn book like Byrne did. I mean, it irritated me, but at least it was consistent. No, for no reason whatsoever, just suddenly page three is turned sideways. It's like yeah. what? It's kind of it's kind of random. It really yeah. is. It's yeah. I did not care for it at all. I really didn't. But that's all I had on this masterpiece. <laughs> Let's see what we got next year. Ooh, actually, next one we actually do have an actual masterpiece this time around. All right. So next book up is Tales of the Teen Titans number forty-seven. Synopsis on this one is super short and sweet. The Monitor records the defeat of the Hive. Mm-hmm. The Monitor's role, literally the very last panel in the book. Yes. Neither the Monitor nor Lila are shown, just dialogue balloons and a shot of the Monitor's satellite in orbit. Uh. When you look at this cover, doesn't it look like a metal band's cover to an album? (laughs) We will rock you. I mean it. Yeah. (laughs) You can see like, like, uh, Aqualad with a guitar, Wonder Girl holding your drumstick. Dude, somebody needs to Photoshop that for us. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Uh, having said that really exciting story. I remember reading this for the first time and thinking this was kind of, this was a satisfying ending the hive mm-hmm. uh which which had been going through since the very beginning of the series so heading into like a little over four years into the book and everything paid off it was really cool the the art was you know it says um george perez co-creator and then mike DiCarlo finisher i'm wondering how much of that is DiCarlo because it, it it feels very per- perez but there's like something slightly missing yeah. in it that makes me think that maybe he was just doing basically like you know layouts and DiCarlo was doing you know m- the bulk of the work which isn't bad don't get me wrong because Perez was really busy around this time but no a fun little story uh, I was more <clears throat> I was I was more interested for some reason in the uh, Garfield going after Deathstroke. Uh, but the the resolution to that story is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever do you remember that? I think so. It happened in Titans proper, right? Yeah, basically they sit down, and Deathstroke just tells him how it is, 
Because Garfield is completely convinced that Deathstroke perverted. That's uh, right. Yeah. And no, that 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 was the great thing about Terra. She was just damaged goods. Right. And that's why a couple years ago, when they they revealed that maybe there was some fiddling with her by Deathstroke, I was really disappointed because. On one hand, you don't want to think the worst of people, but on the other hand, some people are just broken inside. Right. They're just damaged souls. And Tara was one of them, and that's why I liked her as a character, because it's just like, she's just evil. So, the the resolution to that is very satisfying, but this was a, this was just a fun action-action issue. Agreed. I didn't have a whole lot in this one. Um, right off the bat, I love Donna Troy. Uh, I always like this outfit. I mean, I like her in all her incarnations, but just seeing her again, especially on the cover by Perez, I always loved Donna Troy by Perez, and uh, she just looks fantastic. I really like that look. Mm-hmm. Um, early Nightwing appearance. Nightwing had only been around for just a few issues by the time this issue yep. came along, uh, had recently given up being Robin and became Nightwing. And lastly, um, you know, I used to really dig Mike DiCarlo's inks, especially uh, when he was working with uh, Dan Jurgens on Booster Gold. Now, I still do like the Booster Gold stuff, but, uh, you know, in in recent years, it's really occurred to me that uh, I I don't think he's a particularly strong inker. And I think that this this book right here really kind of illustrates that. I, I, I have to be honest, I think the art's a little weak in this one. And... I agree with you. I think it, what it is, I'm, I'm thinking just based on the art here that more than likely Perez just did um, breakdowns, maybe like pencil roughs or something, and then DiCarlo finished it. It's not bad, but it just has a, a sort of light, not quite finished look to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, th- I think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. But uh, but I, as far as the story, I mean, the story more than makes up for it. I mean, this is you know this is quintessential uh, Teen Titans here. I like this quite a bit. Good stuff. Absolutely. All right, whipping right along here. Blue Devil number five. Woo-hoo! Synopsis on this one: Blue Devil's battle with Neberos. Is that how you pronounce that? That's. Uh... I believe that is how you pronounce it. Uh, Shag actually has it from the horse's mouth how to pronounce it, and I believe it is Neberos and not Neberos. Okay. Neberos, Blue Devil's battle with Neberos, is observed by the Monitor and by Lila, who thinks Blue Devil is cute. The Monitor's role in this issue, the entirety of page 17. First frontal face shot of the Monitor. Now... I say that meaning that we are actually looking, you know, at the at the monitor, you know, straight on. This is the first time that this has happened. However, you're only seeing him in silhouette. You know, he's he's an entirely black character with like blue highlights, and basically only his eyes are visible. So we're not seeing any facial features. We don't see what his hair looks like, or if he even has hair. Honestly, at this point, it's very easy to look at this particular presentation of the Monitor and see where so many people thought that the Monitor was going to be revealed to be Darkseid. Because he kind of looks yeah. like Darkseid in this, honestly. 
because that's the thing with the monitor, and, and, and this is a, this this appearance is a really good example of the fact that from his creation and who he was supposed to be and what he ends up as in Crisis Number One, a lot of changes went on behind the scenes oh, yes. around that time period, and you can really see that because Lila here is kind of treated. Uh, as a uh, as they wrote in internal memo, memos, a dumb bunny. She's, yeah, and those long horns are so cute. But yeah, I could totally see people going, "Oh, that's dark side. That's going to be dark side. That that's got to be dark side." You know, something just struck me that I I didn't make a note of before, but I'm glad that I caught it as we're looking at this. Her outfit is different. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first time her outfit has been shown. Now, granted. The outfit that she she normally has, you know, with the very low cut front and everything, it looks a little different from book to book to book, but it's essentially the same outfit, whereas this is a completely different outfit. Hmm. That is strange. I just noticed that. But yes, you are absolutely right that uh you can tell that all they really had to go with was a, a basic outline and, and it was up to each individual writer what they did with the monitor because as we'll see with the next appearance, he uh he's very different in that one. Um I really only had two quick things on this one. I dig Bar- uh Paris Cullens, man. Always been a Paris mm-hmm. Cullens fan. Really like his stuff. Man, it had been so long since I had read any Blue Devil. I'd forgotten how good this stuff was. Yeah, this was this book was Absolutely a lot of fun. This book, it really was. Um, my handful of notes is like you said, wow, Blue Devil's awesome and, and a lot of fun. Paris Cullens is an amazing artist. I, uh, Marla Bloom, originally Marla Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. When I first went through this series, she was the reason that I started having a thing for women with. Uh, with dark hair with white stripes in the front. <laughs> I think that's just sexy as hell. And it, this is just a it's just a great issue. It's just it's action packed, it's fun. Uh Cullens makes this Zatanna outfit, which I've never really been a big fan of work. Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, you would have thought that I, I would think that Perez's take on this Zatanna was the best. I actually think Cullens makes her look sexier. Yeah. She is grit, and, and right there at the end when she kisses Dan, I was just like, you lucky son of a bitch. Uh, well, that picture was circulating on Facebook a while back. It, it's a picture of she's literally grasping his horns to pull his face down to her so she can kiss him. That third panel on page 23 where she's saying, oh, hush, that was going around Facebook a while ago, and I just wanted to point out that, it, that you know this is the issue it actually comes from. I can't remember why it was going around, but it was. It was. I don't know if it was becoming a meme or what was going on, but it was out there as for a while. Monitor, as a monitor appearance, mm, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as an issue of Blue Devil, it's fun as hell, and I love it. Yep. Just love this series. Glad they canceled it before they turned it all dark and moody. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a complete run of that or not. If I don't, I'm one of these days I'll have to try to go back and fill that oh. in. If I don't, I, I can't remember. Back in the summer of 96, I bought a full run of that Blue Beetle and Booster Gold and read them all. Uh, I got them for like a buck a piece. So, though I loved Blue Devil when I went through it. I loved that character. I love how they developed him. 
and in the last issue it was revealed that they were thinking of taking it into a, a more serious direction but they decided to cancel it instead and it was one of those few times where okay if you're going to end it because of that i'm good because if you would have made this serious it might have ruined the series in total right like it could have been so bad that it makes the early issues look bad so but now nah, paris cullens dan mishkin gary khan awesome <laughs> Next up, we have The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man, number 28. The Monitor supplies Slipknot to an interested party to attempt to capture Firehawk and watches his battle with Firestorm. The Monitor's role in this issue is pages 1, 2, and the last two panels of page 23. Now, the Monitor is very much a cackling supervillain in this story to the point yes. that when Firestorm defeats the villain, uh, the Monitor contracted to the 2000 committee, the Monitor is actually upset to the point of ordering Lila to switch off the screen and laments that Firestorm has cost him a great deal of business this day. So, yes, it is very easy with this particular issue to see that there were there were, there were different in you know different versions essentially of the monitor or at least that the writers they didn't know who the monitor was really going to turn out to be in this he is very much just you know a standard supervillain yeah i uh i was really kind of s- surprised by this but then you know knowing what i know about the background information not surprised mm-hmm. Uh, however, the issue itself was a lot of fun. Uh, Slipknot is a the butt of many jokes over on the Fire and Water podcast <laughs> uh, and Who's Who. And uh, I had a conversation with the Irredeemable Shag, uh, who is the expert, really, when it comes to all things Firestorm. And his take on it was that Slipknot was a good villain for Green Arrow, not for Firestorm. <laughs> But I actually rather liked how they set him up in this issue. I mean, his costume is for goddamn ridiculous. Yes. But, but as a villain, I actually rather liked him. And I liked this issue. But I love Fury of the Firestorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fury of Firestorm, the nuclear man, excuse me. And, you know, even beyond... One of the great things about reading these monitors' appearances is it gives you the sampling of what DC was like. Yes. At this time. And you can see why Firestorm was one of their lead dog books because it was just so expertly written. And more, more Lorraine Riley, please. That's <laughs> great. But uh, no, fun book. Despite being told in uh, Blue Beetle number five and elsewhere that the Monitor satellite is cloaked in orbit, this issue's very first caption box says that if you squint hard into the night sky, you can see it. So I thought that that was very interesting. <laughs> While Pat Broderick will always be my Firestorm artist, I'd forgotten how much I like this guy, this Raphael Kiannan. Raphael Kiannan is awesome. Yeah, I really do like this artwork. And lastly for this, uh, I dig Firestorm a lot. I always have. Mm -hmm. And I really, really miss this iteration of the character. During this time, as you say, you know, he was an important player in the the DC universe or DC multiverse and you know, we're going to see that in Crisis of course. But uh yeah, I'm that's why I like that we're doing it this way cuz man, it really is bringing back a, a, sens- a sense of nostalgia because 
you know, granted, I'd been reading comics for a while, but like, you know, 82, 83 era was when I was really getting like, I mean, like really getting into comics because, you know, I was a teen. I had disposable income of my own. So I was starting to feed that habit. So I was just learning who all these guys were and, and what the universe was right about the time they were preparing to change it. So it was an interesting time to be really fully getting into the, you know, the DC universe and, and Firestorm was definitely one of those books that, uh, you know, that I was there for. All right, let's see, moving right along here, Batman and the Outsiders, number 14. Maxi Zeus requests and gets the aid of the, uh, of the new Olympians from the Monitor to use against the Outsiders. And Monitor observes the conflict. Again, this is a part one of two back-to-back pre-crisis Monitor appearance that happens this time around in Batman and the Outsiders, of course. The Monitor's role... Page 12, bottom four panels. The Monitor uh, seems to have a longtime acquaintance with Maxi Zeus. He kind of greets him like not necessarily an old friend, but, you know, definitely, you know, somebody that he's uh, had business with before because as he answers his uh, intercom, he, he just says, it's been some time, Maxwell, and then they, they have their conversation and everything, and... Uh, you just get the impression that they know each other. They've had business before. Did you notice who the artist on this one was? It is... Let me flip back here. I did, yeah, Bill Willingham and uh, Bill Anderson. Bill Willingham, creator of Fables. Oh, that's right. That's right. I knew I knew the name. He Didn't he take over Justice Society after... Uh, what's his name left? Jeff Johns left, or am I thinking of somebody completely different? Uh, yeah, uh, Matthew Sturgis and Bill Willingham did take over. Yeah. You're absolutely right. No, this is uh, this is when he was a uh, uh, an artist writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was mainly known for Elementals, which was an independent right. Yeah, around this time period. I was slightly disappointed to see his name in the credits because I was looking forward to some good old fashioned Aparo artwork. Well, it- in this one, uh huh. But having said that, the art is very strong. Uh, I forgot how much I liked Halo when she had the long hair as opposed to the short punky hair. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that look. Yeah, I didn't. I, I like her like this too. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I just prefer longer hair on women. That's just my personal preference. Uh, way to go, Mike W. Barr, for making Maxi Zeus like a credible threat. Uh, until the very end when it gets really, really silly. Uh, I mean, we, we had this like pretty solid issue with a lot of interplay between the characters and, and why I like the Outsiders. And any team book is when you can get some good interplay between uh, all, you know, the, the members of the team, especially going to Geoforce and Halo kind of making out in the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it turns into my team versus your team at the Summer 1984 Olympics. Because that's not going to date this book horribly at all. Uh, which is mean, but I remember the summer of 1984, and that makes me feel old. Yep. So, uh, what do you think of, of, of Maxie's team? Yeah, they're kind of... They, they look like something out of one of those uh, uh, image books in the 90s or something. You know, like one of those... 
it, it's like one of those teams meets like a Hanna Barbera created <laughs> team of superheroes from like the seventies. You know what I'm saying? It's the Laugh Olympics. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean it was just a solid issue. I love Batman and the Outsiders. I I don't know why I love them so much, but I like them. They're not like my favorite team, but I really enjoyed going through this run uh, when I did up until the point where Batman left. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, Lila is a little uh, sexy, sexified in this issue. Oh my God, that thing is low cut and boobage. Yep. That was, uh, I only had just a couple of notes. That was one of mine. Definitely. Is that I think this is the best and sexiest that Lila has looked, uh, so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She looks really good. She's got some serious boobage going on here, but I like that yes, kind of, I, thing. I guess it's cold on that side. <laughs> it's a little chilly. He keeps the temperature uh, turned down. I was a little freaked out though. On the next page, page 13, when you had halo in that shirt, because they're really, sexifying a teenage girl like overly so I think because she was only in her teens at the was she in college age or I don't remember all I can remember about her was hadn't hadn't she died and been possessed by the color things something like that yeah yeah Yeah. that was the depressing part but I you know I really enjoyed this issue a lot you know this is arguably of of the ones you know we're covering for this segment this time around this was arguably my favorite one it was just fun I mean I thought Batman looked great I thought the art was really really good I like you went into this thinking oh all right we're gonna get some apparel and then it was these guys but I wasn't disappointed because strangely. I see this art team as some sort of weird hybrid between like Aparo and Broderick. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. And, you know, for that reason, I liked it. I thought it was some nice stuff. I liked the character interplay. Um, This brought back a sense of of nostalgia in a weird way because I didn't read Batman and the Outsiders um, as it was coming out. I remember picking up the first issue, and for whatever reason... I, I didn't pick up more, and I collected scattered back issues here and there over the years as they fell in my lap, but I don't think I have anywhere near a complete collection, and one of these days I'm going to have to go back and uh, see if I can fill in the gaps and, and read the series, because anytime I've ever read it, I've always liked it, so I can't remember why I didn't stick with it. Maybe I just couldn't afford it. I really don't remember but uh, but I liked it, and I liked the way that uh, Batman was portrayed in this. He looks really good, but I, I like to put, you know, it's important to me that Batman's also portrayed well, and I like how he's portrayed, you know, as far as his character beats and everything. And, of course, it's always good to see uh, Ronnie Reagan again, so that was nice. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. Unfortunately, uh, the second half of this story, we're not, at least I'm not going to enjoy quite so much, because all of a sudden the art just goes, huh? So... All right, let's see. I think we got just one. Yep, one more time. All right, this time around we have Action Comics, number 560. The Monitor gives John Doe a a contact who provides him with a supervillain costume and accessories. The Monitor's role, page 10, top three panels. Just a shot of the satellite, a shot of the Monitor's hand, and the monitor's voice emanating from a speaker. He's really not doing a whole hell of a lot in this issue. Yeah, I. it wasn't a very good monitor appearance. I liked it as a Superman 
Yes. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it, it the the Saviak art gives it kind of a whimsical feel. Mm-hmm. But it's actually a pretty tight little plot. And, super, and, yeah, the revelation of why Superman is forgetting who he is sometimes or what his powers can do is a little, like, silver agey at the end. <laughs> but at the end... But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed this story. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I've always kind of chafed against this kind of Silver Age silliness so late in the game, meaning so close to you know, the end of this incarnation of Superman. But this time around, maybe it's the nostalgia talking. I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I really liked the art because I've always had a real soft spot for Saviak's take on Superman. And it's weird because I don't think I should. Given how I like Superman to look, and especially given the way he's drawn by certain other artists that I really don't like, like, say, uh, you know, by this point, whenever Schaffenberger would draw Superman, it would just irritate me because I felt like that style was way out of style, way out of date. And a lot of Saviak stuff, honestly, does look a lot like Schaffenberger stuff. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, I really dig it. I really like his Superman in this. So I got a cop, you know, I, I got a, uh, a kick out of it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you can tell I was reading it. Ahead in my notes, I started to read my next note. Uh, my copy of this is just whipped. This is the only one of, of all the books we've covered tonight, the only one that I have that's uh, not in, like, super great condition. This one's actually pretty whipped. But, uh, but yeah, I like mine that. Are in, hmm? Mine are in pretty good condition. I think the only, the only two pre... No, four. I don't have the Swamp Thing... Pre-crisis monitor appearances, and I I don't have Jonah Hex number ninety, and I don't have GI Combat two seventy five. Mm. But other than that, I have them all. Which is kind now of you're doing pretty good because the Swamp Thing one shouldn't be hard to find. They might be a little pricey. I'm not sure, but they shouldn't be hard to find. Jonah, yeah, I, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. It was just like one of those things. Jonah 90 might be a little bit hard to find. There's nothing special about the issue per se, but the the print run was getting low by that point because he would be canceled within two issues. And, uh, yeah, that GI Combat, good luck, man. I hope you have easier luck with that than I did because, again, it's not expensive, but I, it took, those were the hardest ones of because I own all the pre-crisis monitor appearances and the crossovers. And of all of them, the GI combat ones were definitely the hardest. As a matter of fact, didn't you? I think you got me one of them. Yeah, I managed to find them in like a $3 bin at Dragon Con a couple years ago, and there was two of them, so I picked up both. Cool. Yeah, to this so I day, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't have that one if it wasn't for you. Well, that's because there's that one that's misnumbered, too, because all these years I thought I had them all, and it turns out that in the crossover, in the uh, official index for Crisis, the two issues of GI Combat that are listed are listed incorrectly. One of them is correct, the other one is not. But, of course, we'll cover that way on down the road when we get there. But Oh, yeah. Whew. So... <laughs> we finally made it through everything on this one. This was a uh, a big old episode, as it turned out, but I, hell of a lot of fun. I think this is the biggest month of pre, uh, pre-crisis pre monitor appearances that we're going to have. 
uh, because from here on out, uh, next month's pretty heavy as well. Right. But the uh, but when you get further and further, it's really funny. A couple of them happen during crisis. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Batman, uh, Batman and Detective Comics ones, and the Tales of the Teen Titans number fifty-eight all happen down the down the road during Crisis. So I don't know how we're going to cover those. Yeah, Titan fifty-eight, as I recall, leads directly into Crisis number one, I do believe, or at least you know c- pertaining to one of the characters anyway. But it came out like six months after. Right, just the weird part of it. <laughs> so, but next time we've got uh, one that we've already covered. Uh, one we're going to cover during the show, and a handful of others. What did we already cover? Justice League of America number 232. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, seeing as how we've already covered it, are we going <laughs> to... We can just kind of... No, we'll just... It's like, hey, go back and listen to that episode. Yep. We can just breeze right past that. Yeah, that that actually helped in our in our coverage, now that you say that. Um, I remember making note that, oh, yeah, we did that one already, so it's one less i got to read next time around. But I know besides the real American and and the battle with Amazing Man and also, you know, the continuation of the Generation Saga, I think everybody is going to want to come back next next time specifically to hear how the Big Sur (laughs) storyline. They're on pins and needles. Pins and needles. And, um, yeah, I'm just going to go on record saying I do not support anything about... Uh, big sir and I uh, never will you've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America you can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally, Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. 
Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 